You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today I am talking to Heritage Resource Consultant, Sarah Marsum. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sure. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? I am a Heritage Resource Consultant. I bequeathed that title to myself a few years ago. I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, and I originally was in nonprofits for preservation, but I wanted to shake things up. So I entered the consulting world where I focus on two specific avenues. The primary stream of interest and revenue for me is heritage interpretation. Nothing's more exciting than creating new storytelling tactics or outreach strategies or exhibit panels that help bring the past to life and connect to people in present day. I also, through that, do strategic planning for young preservationists or K through 12 um, for organizations. So if your organization has looked around and noticed that you are primarily 40 and older, then I can come in and help your organization figure out how to expand to reach younger audiences. Mm-hmm. And then the second is I do work with developers on a case-by-case basis. I want to make sure that I'm working with developers who understand the social impact of the redevelopment of these old structures. So I work with typically younger and emerging developers to educate them on preservation, the tools that exist, historic tax credits and other financial incentives, easements, and historic designations and how they can benefit the structure so that we can look at preservation as a way to allow them to fix up an old building, but also how we can use it to activate the community and engage the community. So for example, I'm working on a developer with a developer right now on a project, an old church complex. And we're talking about what kind of tour programs we do while the building's getting fixed up. So I like to think about how developers can be more community minded. And those are the ones I partner with. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really good. I I like that idea of the, the tours while the building is still in the process. Uh, one of our groups here in New Orleans, the PRC, the Preservation Resource Center, does an event called Beams and Brews, and they invite people out uh, to see the buildings that are in in the mid-renovation process, usually ones that are using some kind of tax credit to see how the process is going. And I really like that. That's a really cool concept. So it's really cool to see that you're you're doing that kind of work too, where you're at. That's really neat. So I wanted to touch on your education and sort of like how you got started in preservation. And then we'll we'll go on and talk about some of the thing other things that you do, like speaking engagements and stuff. So I've read in several different places that you as a kid you like to collect junior ranger badges. And then you went on to get a BS in parks and recreation management. Did that is that what led you to that degree? Is 
Growing up, my parents always made sure that we would visit museums or cultural sites growing up, which is how I started getting the Junior Ranger badges. One of my most vivid childhood memories is climbing up the ladders at Mesa Verde in Colorado so that we could view the cliff dwellings. And that really made an impact on me, except when I went to college, I thought that I'd want to lead people on hikes and go camping with them because I love doing that. My feed on Instagram, or if you talk to me, I'm mostly talking about buildings, but I love to be isolated in wilderness. So that's what I thought I wanted to do, but then I quickly realized that I didn't want to deal with people complaining about blisters. When I got, <laughs> I got wilderness first responder certified, which teaches you how to deal with a punctured lung when you're mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, actually, this sounds too stressful. And like, it would take my favorite thing away from me. Mm -hmm. So I pivoted and realized, oh, the other reason why I love going to parks is that I learn cool lesser known histories and I can see firsthand the dwellings that people lived in or, you know, archaeological sites. So I did an internship at Reardon Mansion State Historic Park, a 1904 arts and crafts mansion designed by Charles Whittlesey. It was just gorgeous and it was a wonderful way for me to really better connect my love of parks with history. And eventually, you know, I learned the National Park Service is the mothership of preservation. So it really made sense for it all to connect. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you went on to get a, a master's in preservation. From where, again, remind me? I graduated in 2010, and obviously nobody was hiring Parks and Rec degree <laughs> students at that time because mm -hmm. of the recession. Um, so I actually did a year off between undergraduate and graduate school, which was really beneficial to me. I did another internship, and at this time I worked for Old Salem Museum and Gardens in North Carolina, mm -hmm. and it solidified that, yes, preservation would be my next step and that I needed to expound on my um education in that area. So I selected Eastern Michigan University. Okay. Uh, yeah, I selected them because you could choose emphasis that included heritage interpretation. And at this point, I'd given countless tours of historic sites at all my different internships since my undergraduate, since I was 19. So I really wanted to have a focus on how you communicate about the past. So I'm, I'm always kind of interested because uh, to this point, like uh, the majority of my guests have been MPS graduates from the same program that I went to here in, in New Orleans at Tulane. And so I like to get information about the other programs that are available out there <laughs> that might have a different focus from from like the one that's here. And so is, is that particular degree, or I guess you said you can you can sort of choose your focus. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about it? Like what, what kind of classes they offer and what's available through that program? At Eastern Michigan, you could be a general studies or you could have a focus in planning or like I said, heritage interpretation. It is one of the largest programs in the country partially because there are a number of part-time students. So there, when I was there, there were about 100 students enrolled. Wow. And that allows you to have a wide variety of classes. I took digital heritage class, vernacular architecture, urban history, 
how to do museum plans and interpretation was one of the classes. They have a really wide range. And even since I graduated in December 2013, I've seen the program really continue to evolve and expand in different ways. And they just got a new director of the program, Nancy Brake, who is a Latina who's worked in the industry for 30, 40 plus years. So I'm really excited to see where she takes the program with her different new fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. That sounds really great. It sounds like it, it has an element too of like public history, besides just like a really narrow sort of building preservation focus, which which is good to hear because I, I think some of that stuff may be missing from some of the other programs that are available out there. I, I know the MPS program here, being that it's part of the School of Architecture, it has a very architecture-based focus and a lot of those other things you don't get in in this particular program. And it's only a year long. Is, is the one that Whoa. you did, is it two years? It's two years. I took okay. two and a half. I slow poked because I got a fellowship opportunity that required me to extend. Um, but you're right. It it does have more variety based on your interest. People who've graduated from the program work for the National Park Service or State Historic Preservation Offices, but many of them do end up in museums and more educational, cultural resources type settings. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll have to look into that one. I think I'm going to try to do a, a segment on the show where I talk to a couple of directors from different schools to just kind of get that information out there for people that might be trying to look for a program to start with. So I'll have to add that one to my list for sure. <laughs> so next, I wanted to talk to you about, you do a lot of other things outside of sort of the general scope of, of what I think of normally as like a basic preservation job and you do a lot of speaking engagements and I know you just did one just what like a week ago and then you you had like four or five last year too so are you usually approached to do speaking engagements or is it something that you reach out to panels or how does that usually work it's kind of a twofold approach of why and how they happen I was originally after graduate school, I worked for the German Village Society. The German Village Historic District has had a local designation since 1960. So it's one of the oldest designated districts in the entire country, the top 10. Mm -hmm. um, so while I was there, I would get invited places to speak about the neighborhood and how it was preserved. So that started me understanding that people are eager to learn case studies and real world experiences because while I love the academic programs that are around the country and all the differences like we just went through, you know, a lot of the professors have, you haven't worked in the field full time in a very long time. Mm -hmm. So I started having these groups reach out to me. And then when I left the nonprofit to pursue consulting. I also viewed speaking engagements as a way to market myself. So some of the speaking engagements that I've done in the past, like in 2018 at the National Main Street Conference, that's because I sent a submission 
And I wanted to get in front of the Main Street audiences. But not just that, I also had never had the opportunity to go to a Main Street conference. And typically when you're a speaker, you get a significantly reduced registration rate that makes it Mm -hmm. affordable to attend. So that's kind of been one of the reasons that I've gone more into speaking. And as I've picked up steam in my consulting, I have gotten asked more readily from different places. And last year I had the opportunity to speak at Lakeside Chautauqua, one of the historic Chautauqua communities in the country. And that was just a real treat to be invited and to be a part of that historic atmosphere that has prioritized educating people for, you know, a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you if, if you had a favorite forum or event that you've spoken at, would you say that one was the your favorite one that you've done so far? It's really hard to say, but it might be because of the atmosphere, but I've just in general really enjoyed the opportunities to speak in front of different audiences. Last year, I attended almost every national preservation conference in the country because I was Mm -hmm. at Main Streets, the National Alliance of Preservation Commissions, Association for Preservation Technology, and the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference. So each audience is very different. It's very interesting how in preservation, we have our silos, even within this very niche field. So it's just great to hear the response and the different strategies or reasons why people are engaged. I'm really excited in March this year, I'm going to be the keynote of Modern Phoenix. And I've had my eye on Modern Phoenix for years. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm over the moon ready and jazzed up to be in the desert yeah I saw that you were doing that and then and you're doing something with some textiles is that right for that program as well yeah I pitched this idea because I've been like I said I've been watching them for a while and I know what kind of events they've done like last year in 2018 they had an event that taught you how to do traditional lettering for signage like they did in the mid-century so I had I pitched Allison King, the founder and um, executive of that program, that I would teach a workshop that paid homage to women in the household in the mid-century where we would teach sewing. So we've partnered with Spoonflower, which is a textile printing company based in Durham, North Carolina. And we have a desert modernism design challenge where people are submitting ideas that are inspired by modernism in the desert because... You know, there's so many great breeze blocks and Mm -hmm. the traditional textile patterns of Arizona with indigenous tribes. There's really great opportunities of culture to pull from. And then we're going to highlight it through a sewing workshop after my keynote that pays homage to the uh, lesser represented stories of the homemakers of the 20th century and then we're gonna use our pillows as some cushions and watch pillow talk storing starring doris day and rock <laughs> oh that sounds like fun <laughs> yeah i so, really think it's important to try and put a different spin on how we do these lectures and workshops and when i can make them hands-on i am wanting to pull out the paint or the needle and thread or whatever i can mm-hmm that I feel like that's really, do you get a lot of positive feedback from the hands-on stuff? Because I feel like sometimes those lectures can be a little bit, you know, a little bit dull or, you know, just depending on what the topic is. Do you get 
do you get positive feedback from that hands-on stuff? Because that sounds like it would be a lot of fun to me to go to an event like that and then be able to come away with something that I've created, not just learning, but have something tangible that I can bring home. I've received very positive feedback because when we think through learning styles and techniques, you can't just talk at somebody. You Mm -hmm. need to resonate them, whether it's sound, visuals, smells, tactile. You have to connect on as many levels as possible so that it truly resonates, which is why I think that fusing art with preservation is a logical fit. One of the workshops that I've done a few times is in partnership with Letterpress, where we do Letterpress-themed preservation posters or postcards. Um, Last year, we did postcards that said, torn down for what? And then we partner it with a lecture on how to be an advocate for preservation. So in March this year, I'm doing another one of these where it's a lecture on how you can be an advocate for preservation at a local or state level. And we'll conclude with everybody writing a postcard to a state legislator, you know, on your preservation theme postcard that you just printed on letterpress like it's in the 1800s and then we're sending it off. So it really helps things connect on a deeper level and make it a little bit more casual. We make preservation too stuffy, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. So make it a little bit more lighthearted. Nobody's going to die unless they're Richard Nickel in Chicago (laughs) climbing through buildings. You know, like, let's have fun with this so that we can expand the conversation and make it a positive. Saving resources is a positive. It shouldn't be something that is a you know, down in the dumps. Oh, somebody's approving my paint color type thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that, so that kind of leads me into my next question about one of the talks that you gave last year in April, 2008, when you went to the Indiana landmarks, preserving historic places. And um, you did a talk called telling stories, DIY creative placemaking. And I was able to find the, I guess, the slides from the presentation. They were online, of course, without your speech. I don't, I didn't get the full grasp of it, but it sounded like a really, like the ideas you were presenting sounded really neat. So can you talk about kind of what DIY creative placemaking is? The presentation was done in partnership with the wonderful Dana Saylor from Buffalo, New York, who has helped be a catalyst for the revitalization of their silos up there. Uh, But the focus of the presentation was, again, how to be tactile, engaging. How do you turn children, not from tour participants, but into architectural detectives and have them help leading the tour? Or did you know that if you look at manhole covers, sometimes they tell stories about the past in Newark, Ohio, which is currently for review to become part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of the Native American mounds there. Their manhole covers have the mounds. So why don't we turn those into a print shop? Because you can just roll some paint on top of this manhole, screen Mm -hmm. print, and now you have an artifact. So how do we, again, connect these dots in a more multidimensional sense and something that may turn somebody into an active observer to look up and look down at their surroundings. 
or encourage them to want to be hands-on. One of my favorite programs that I launched when I was at the German Village Society is the neighborhood is known for their brick streets, brick sidewalks, brick houses, all brick everything. Mm -hmm. Except brick sidewalks, those can be a death trap. So I paid homage to a fun story of the past, which was the neighborhood speaking up to save the brick streets by relaying them themselves. So I paid homage to them by creating workshops where the neighborhood residents, we would just spend a Saturday with a landscaper relaying sidewalks in front of people's houses. So, you know, like, how do we get people active and engaged so that they're invested in their community in a higher level? And that's really what the DIY creative placemaking is. It's that these types of workshops can be done anywhere and you can just do it yourself you don't necessarily need a huge budget to do it i do talk through funding sources of course because it's nice to have a little bit of pocket change to give pizza to the volunteers but right <laughs> anybody can really start something from nothing i really love that idea i just it, it just sounds very very cool uh, i love what you're doing Sorry, I'm just like, I'm just enamored. I can tell the, the way you're talking about the the projects is I could just hear the passion in your voice. And it just makes me like, over. I'm over here going, what what can I come up with? Something neat that that's cool that'll get people engaged. Like it, I, I, I really get it. Like I can hear the passion. I just love it. It's very exciting. Well, uh. I had somebody ask me the other day on a phone call. They're like, well, how do you even come up with these ideas? And a lot of it is because I don't just look to preservation for my continuing education. While I do love continuing to stay abreast on best building materials or how tax credits have changed, you know, those are really important. I listen to people who aren't in preservation because they will give you some of the best ideas because, you know, they're just interested but they aren't professional, but maybe you can be that person who bridges the gaps. Like I love giving Instagram tours, you know, going on a bike or on a foot with a bunch of Instagrammers. Mm -hmm. they're, they're taking photos and you just pay attention to what they're doing. What are they interested in? And then you can find ways to expound to enhance their experience through storytelling or something a bit more hands-on. Mm -hmm. I was actually gonna gonna ask you that too, how you were coming up with these ideas. So <laughs> you read my mind. You already answered the question. <laughs> um, I didn't. I mean, it's not on my resume because I didn't speak at it last year. But I went to the Midwest Craft Convention last year, which was a multi-day conference of hands-on makers, and that was incredibly inspiring to think through what the different arts are that we have been doing traditionally over the years. And I could connect those dots to figures in past and time. You know, I'm not just drawn to textiles because I learned how to sew when I was little, but there's icons like Florence Knoll who helped be a part of Knoll Furniture who designed woven textiles or Ruth Adler Cheney who did repeating patterns. There's these wonderful stories and it all really starts to connect. We've got to connect the dots past to present, but also what's all the good meat in the center and how do we use it for the future? That's, I really like the way you put that. That's a really good description. I think there is like, I, I brought this up previously in a couple episodes about what I like to call the preservation bubble. And sometimes it's good to step outside and find other ways that, 
you know, we can connect to other things like art and other types of history besides just, you know, like a preserving a building or a monument or something like that. And I think that what you just said is a really good way to like step out of the bubble and see how other things connect to each other. That's really cool. So I wanted to, next I wanted to cover the book that you just helped work on. You were a primary contributor for the newest edition of Historic Preservation, an introduction to its history, principles, and practice. So I went online and I bought a copy of this and now I have it next to the second edition, which I already had on my bookshelf. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. So I'm excited to see how the new one, how the differences between the two. um, Major overhaul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of excited to see how it's going to go. So I wanted to talk to you about that because I think this is like the first thing you worked on, right, as um, as a writer. So can you start by telling us about the book for those listeners that maybe didn't have to read it for school or don't have a copy of it already? <laughs> the text, which was originally written, and there's still the main authors, uh, Norman Eileen Tyler and Dr. Ted Ligabel. It is a wonderful fundamental guide to historic preservation. And Each chapter delves into a specific topic. So if you're somebody who works for a historic district commission or somebody who just wants to have a really good fundamental baseline knowledge of preservation, this is the book for it. Because you can just pick it up and read the chapter on historic districts or pick it up and read the chapter on sustainability or the one on philosophy. It's really, in, in my mind, I think it's an essential book along with the A Field Guide to American Houses by Virginia Savage McAllister. Yeah, I think that's the one next to it on my bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just, I find that it's a wonderful resource guide, especially because like I said, preservation, if you're a professional preservationist, that means you can do anything from restoring windows to leading tours to everything in between. But this book is something that can allow you to almost be an instant expert to a certain extent on a very specific topic. And when we were doing the third edition, one of the reasons the authors brought me in is because they know that I am a voracious reader and I read preservation news every single day. So we really wanted to overhaul the case studies so that the case studies were all freshened up, but also so that we were telling a broader story of how people are doing preservation, including better case studies from international examples and also better representation of non-white history initiatives Mm -hmm. and what are the next generation of people doing? We include a bit of information on crowdfunding for preservation in this book. We talk about briefly about the difficulties in Confederate monuments. And I think it's just a really good opportunity for people who are wanting to expand or get up-to-date knowledge on preservation. And I'm going to be entirely honest, writing doesn't come particularly easy to me, (laughs) which which is pretty hilarious because both my mother and my sister have master's in English and have taught college-level writing courses. 
So it was a really great challenge for me. I've been a verbal interpreter for so long that mm-hmm. it helped me better understand on how to written, use the written word to communicate and educate people in a deeper way. And is released September 2018. And I've been really pleased to see the response to the book so far. And to be 100% honest, my book is already covered in notes and things to keep an eye on for when the eventual fourth edition will happen. I've got a whole list of lawsuits that are currently underway that I would love to throw into the legal section once those are, you know, solidified. Mm hmm. Well, I was going to ask you about about the writing process and if if you in, enjoy doing it, but you kind of already answered that question for me. Yeah, I, it has, though, inspired me uh, to challenge myself on a more regular basis for writing. So I maintain my blog on my website regularly, but also I've submitted to other publishing opportunities like this year I'm going to be published through Belt Publishing which focuses largely on Midwest architecture and urbanism on their Columbus anthology I have a short piece for that or Indo Windows the interior storm window company they published their first zine last year and I did a really short form piece for that okay so you can kind of see yourself being involved doing more of this type of writing in the future and definitely want to try to be involved in the fourth edition of this book then, it no, sounds I like. Come to one of my lectures, but maybe they can read something that I put on the internet or in one of these books. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm really excited to to read this this new version of it and see see how how different it is. It sounds really great. I, it's something blogging and is something that I've, I've thought about adding to what I've been doing with the podcast as well, but I kind of have the same issue. I am, I'm not much of a writer <laughs> and I have to kind of sit down and really focus hard on what I'm doing. And even just writing the little description blurbs for the podcast on the website, take me like an hour and they're like six sentences. So <laughs> I have, but I've definitely wanted to like maybe branch out and do more of that too, to have a little bit more content than just, just the podcast. So I think it's a great opportunity and maybe you can recruit some of your guests to help you do content as well. That's true. That's a good idea. I've thought about like, I want to do more visual images as well and, and having uh, some of the guests submit their own images that I can Uh, like sort of add to a catalog maybe um, and that kind of stuff but that's a good idea I might start doing that because I've definitely had a couple of people in addition to you that have done some serious writing projects that that might be able to help me a little bit (laughs) nothing's better than collaboration that's true that's true and if you don't know how to do something it never hurts to ask because there's always somebody out there that is willing to share their their knowledge with you, which I just, that's one of the things I just love about preservation field. Uh, moving past the book, I wanted to talk about some of the organizations and projects that you founded. And I understand that I most of these are, are volunteer work, but they sound really interesting. Um, so can we start with the Young Ohio Preservationist Group, what that is and what you do with that organization? The Young Ohio Preservationist is a 
subgroup of Heritage Ohio, the statewide nonprofit for historic preservation here. And it was founded in 2014. There were focus groups right when I moved to Columbus, Ohio, and I was like, this is a great way to make friends. The focus groups were to see if there should be a young preservationist initiative through the nonprofit, which I think we can all agree, yes, mm-hmm. all historic preservation nonprofits should be trying to reach younger demographics. So I went to these focus groups and then I waited and I waited and nothing really happened. So I reached out to Heritage Ohio and I was like, hey, can I make this happen? Because I'm new to this town and I need some friends. Mm-hmm. That's essentially how it really got started. And I had previously helped run the student organization for historic preservation at Eastern Michigan. So I kind of had some familiarity on how you organize a bunch of young people and get them to go to point A to point B for happy hours or tours or whatever. So the Young Ohio Preservationists, we do a myriad of activities ranging from educational Uh, Such as we had Kate Wagner from McMansion Hell come in for a guest lecture. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It was a blast. I highly recommend everybody bring Kate to their town. To hands-on educational, we partnered with a local community development corporation to do a window restoration workshop. We fixed something like 20 windows in one weekend. And the house was later sold to a low-income family. And I was so proud when I saw the real estate listing saying, recently restored windows. Nice. And then, of course, you know, we do hard hat tours, uh, walking tours. We've partnered with Rory Krupp, is a, who is a wonderful consultant who just finished the African-American Civil Rights Context Statement for Ohio. And mm-hmm. he's led a few bike tours for us, delving into the Greenbrook book in the civil rights issues because I didn't even realize until I took his bike tour that Columbus, Ohio was had segregated schools until 1978. That's over 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Wow. I didn't know that either. Yeah. So, I mean, just really incredible wealth of information. Um, so, and then we do happy hours. We know that not everybody drinks alcohol, which is fine. So we always make sure to pick a bar or a spot that has non-alcoholic beverages so that we can be fully inclusive of everybody. But it's nice to have a bit more informal opportunities to mingle and to get to know each other. Mm-hmm. We we do happy hours here. I mean, New Orleans is kind of, I mean... You know, we, do, we, we drink a lot here. That's just kind of one of those things, I guess. And we, we do like uh, several organizations here try to do like a local happy hour. We do one where they try to arrange for the current MPS students to come and do a happy hour with the former MPS students to do some networking. And they do that like once a semester and it never fails that we all show up and none of the students come and it's all just the same alumni (laughs) in the bar talking about the same projects. (laughs) The issue is you have to go to students. It's, you can't expect students to come to you. So Young Ohio, we're actually launching a speaker series this year where we are going to the universities on their territory. And we're going to do our first one in April with the Columbus College of Art and Design, where it is a panel of what kind of careers you can do in preservation, because artists would make great conservation or 
They could do sewing workshops like me. You know, I, I just really find that you're right. Students aren't always inclined to go to the happy hour. So that's why we have to go to them. And we actually have an Ohio State University student on our board now to help us come up with more strategies to bridge the gap. Nice. Nice. That's a good idea. In addition to the Young Ohio Preservationists, there's also the Rust Belt Coalition of Young Preservationists. Is that <laughs> yes. sort of like an offshoot uh, where it you're connected some other, some, to uh, some other groups? Uh, so I went to the 2015 National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference in D.C. and was talking to Raina Regan, the then chair of Preserve Greater Indy, which is the YP group in Indianapolis. And we were talking about, oh, we're only three hours apart. Why aren't we getting together to share ideas to learn from each other? So unbeknownst to us at the exact same time, Buffalo and Pittsburgh's young preservationist groups were having this exact same conversation. Luckily, I knew Bernice Riddell from Buffalo and she connected our dots. So we all fused together for the Rust Belt Coalition of Young Preservationists. It's now comprised of groups from New York, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. And we get together two to three times a year for Rust Belt takeovers. These are informal educational events where it is our goal to better educate these organizational leaders on best strategies. Board recruitment for millennials, it's an entirely different tactic than how you traditionally do board recruitment. Mm -hmm. Or what kind of events have been a success and which have been a bust? And can we share ideas on how those work together? And then also exploring a city together in a unconventional way. You know, we're not looking at TripAdvisor for how we explore. And I'm sure most preservationists can relate to that. In Pittsburgh, when we did that event, we hiked up and down the city steps that have been used for something like 100 years as a pedestrian mode of transportation. And we learned about the history of city planning and what the city is doing to try and preserve these steps that are still used today. Or in Buffalo, we walked around the old silos and learned about how those are being fixed up and some of them into breweries. But then we also do some deep dive workshops. We had the opportunity to have a workshop about inclusion and allyship with Lauren Hood in Detroit, who is then the executive director of Live Six. And it was a wonderful opportunity to talk to somebody who has worked in neighborhoods that have been ignored by preservationists on how you can best partner with these groups and gain their trust. And it's not something that's going to happen through one email, one phone call, one meeting. You know, it takes years. So it was great for us to have this kind of informal training opportunity because a lot of these young preservationist groups aren't helmed by a professional preservationist or their board is you know, comprised of a diverse array of professions. My board has planners, librarians, students, you know, we have a wide assortment of people passionate about place. And I think that's wonderful because the preservation field needs to continue to grow outward and gain more advocates who are just recreational preservationists. So it's a great way to get them educated and up to speed. And like one of our rules at takeovers is no acronyms. 
no AIA, ULI, APA. We have to, we have to yeah. all talk the same language and preservationists talk in code a lot. Yeah, I, I've, I've come to discover that. <laughs> yeah, so it's just a really great, fun opportunity. And our next event is going to be in Milwaukee, May 10th through 12th. And I'm super excited. They don't have an established young preservationist group, but they have passionate people who want to help show off the city through a different lens and to find ways to inspire the younger generation to be a part of the movement. And do you think do you think it's important to to bring young preservationists together for more inclusivity and accessibility to different types of preservation. I mean, it's obviously something that you're very passionate about, but I don't know. I I guess like for you, what is your drive to, to bring all these people together? For preservation to retain and expand relevance, we have to help people understand the meaning of it. And part of this is representation. I look at the advertisements for lots of these preservation organizations. And while I love hanging out with my parents, you know, I don't always want to hang out with people <laughs> my parents' age. You sure. know, so we, ha- we have to have these types of either committees or groups or even just young people on board members. Because I do believe the young preservation movement should be better integrated into existing organizations. But I think it's really necessary for the sustainability. And we do this through expanding the age groups and understanding that preservation storytelling or any of it, it's not one size fits all. But then also expanding the stories that are being told, telling the stories of the lesser preserved histories, empowering people to find those histories, we can really expand the movement and gain greater support for it, whether it's lobbying, you know, through the state or local or national legislator, or just empowering people to be community advocates. It's, I think it's really essential. And in my mind, there's actually three types of preservationists. Uh, We use it casually, typically, to describe what I would describe as professional preservationists, but those aren't the only ones. We have the recreational preservationists, who are the people who intentionally visit historic sites or join a committee for their neighborhood group. And then we have the passive preservationists, who are people who go to their main street for dinner at night instead of the Apple's V's in the strip mall, you know, Mm -hmm. and how do we convert those passive preservationists into recreational preservationists? Or how do we empower the young preservationists to consider pursuing careers in preservation and become professionals in it? Let's expand the field instead of relying on the existing constructs and fighting over a seat at the table. Let's make this table bigger. Let's build more tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can all be like uh, my previous guest, Ashley, who knew she wanted to be a preservationist from the tender age of 14. We, <laughs> we didn't all get, get there from that, that same place. So, and, and most people don't even know that's an option. I didn't, I didn't realize that was an option. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, if, if I was her age, I may have known it was an option. It certainly wasn't when 
if you move back a decade, <laughs> when I was her age, a decade before she was, it wasn't something that people thought about. The closest we got to it was like an undergrad as a history major. I took public history classes as a certificate. And one of them was like, a, it was a preservation class, but it was very general. And it wasn't until later that I realized that it was you know, graduate school and then like something you could actually do for a real job. But Ashley's significantly younger than I am. So I think she had more exposure to it. I'm going to tell you a secret. I did not take a single history class in undergrad or graduate school. I took art history classes, but I went in with so many AP credits that I just didn't need a single history class. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's not, I don't know. I always just really liked history. And so that's kind of where I ended up after I tried like a bunch of different things as an undergrad. And, and it wasn't so much to like, give me a base, I guess, for preservation later. It was just what I was interested in. Yeah. And then I I took anthropology. I thought anthropology was really interesting and the more I delve into preservation, the more relevance of anthropology and actually understanding more about lives, it all connects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the one last thing I wanted to talk to you about as far as the projects that you've worked on is the Tiny Activist Project, because I kept seeing this one pop up and I didn't really know what it was. At first, I think you had posted about it in the professional Facebook group or something. And and then I realized what you were doing and I was like, this is really neat. So can you talk about what that is, and it, I guess it goes with the sewing that you were talking about, yeah. um, and how you've sort of grown that project. In 2016, I was heading to the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference in Houston, and I was managing the Rust Belt Coalition's Instagram. And I thought, how funny would it be for Jane Jacobs to tell? her experiences going through a city that's notorious for having no zoning and having a proclivity for tearing down buildings. Because Jane Jacobs, I like to call her the patron saint of modern day preservation. Mm -hmm. She wrote The Death and Life of Great American City. She helped save Greenwich Village from being destroyed during urban renewal when urban planner and her arch nemesis Robert Moses wanted to destroy for interstates and roadways. Uh, So I thought she would be a great voice to tell the story of Houston on our social media account. So I pulled out my needle and thread and I sewed a little tiny Jane Jacobs doll and I took her to the conference and she had a blast making friends. And I received (laughs) this response from people going, I want a doll. I want one. And I go, well, hand sewing all of this took a very long time. I don't think you want to be charged what I'd have to charge you for. So I started thinking through what are my goals? What is my desire? And I partnered with my childhood friends, friends since before birth, because our parents are best friends, Um, Shannon May, an illustrator based in San Francisco, and she designed a tiny Jane Jacobs illustration for me, which I have been printing through Spoonflower, the company helping support my modern Phoenix workshop. And I have been able to come up with mass producible 
producible as fast as I can sew them, uh, mm-hmm. tiny Jane dolls as a kind of unconventional way to tell the history of historic preservation. And I've been really amazed at the number of people that I meet at preservation conferences that don't know who Jane Jacobs is. So a lot of people in our field don't even know our field's history. So she's been a great way to jumpstart conversations. And every doll sale that I've done, and I also sew kits because I've been really pleased to find that there's a bunch of crafters in this field alongside me, has helped support scholarship funds. So the past two years, I've been able to help support five people to attend the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference. I call them tiny scholarships for people with big dreams. They're not huge scholarships, they're $200, but if you're a student, that covers your full registration. Or if you're professional, that you know really can make a difference in terms of how expensive the registration is, or that could cover your lodging potentially. Because I think it's really important to understand that there is a gap in what people can afford for continuing education. And I'm really happy to be able to start supporting people in my field at such a young age. So I changed it from the Tiny Jane Jacobs or the Tiny Jane Project to the Tiny Activist Project because I'm actually working on a couple new dolls to be released this year. Uh, One of them is in partnership with the Latinos and Heritage Conservation, where we have crowdsourced ideas for who the doll should be that helps represent the Latinx community. And the submissions we got were just incredible. Like Adina de Zavala, who in Texas, she helped advocate to save the extant buildings of the Alamo, buildings that in the late 1800s, the white male historians didn't see valuable, but her in the same time, she understood the full context of the site was part of its value. So she helped those be saved. And she was writing historic markers in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I had no clue this woman existed. Yeah. Or Sophia Rivera, who is a, was a trans woman of color who was a part of the Stonewall riots. But she spent the later part of her life working to preserve the history of women of color who were, have been a part of the LGBTQ movement. So we got these wonderful submissions that were across the full spectrum of Latinx history in America. And we have been taking our sweet time reviewing all these applications to make sure that we select a great story to tell and represent a specific part of the built environment's history and Latinx history. And then the other doll I um, will say is tied to the modernism movement. Okay. So the scholarships that you make available, how, if we have a listener that's interested, how would they uh, apply or how, how does that work? I will post them probably by March. Go to tinyactivistproject.com and you can sign up for my newsletter and it'll be e-blasted. I also will share on my social media accounts, Sarah Marsum on Instagram and Twitter and then Tiny Activist Project on both Instagram and Twitter. It's a fairly short application because I don't want somebody to write a novel, but I want to hear how people think the conference will help them push preservation forward in a positive way. 
And I'm really excited because these other dolls that I'm adding, those are going to help support other scholarship funds. And each doll will help support a specific fund. So with the Latinos and Heritage Conservation, they host a conference every other year. So that doll is going to help support scholarships to attend their conference. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I will put in in the show notes i'll make sure to put links to to everything so anybody that wants to access or sign up for your newsletter can do that too and i'll put it all up there so okay (laughs) so let's see let's oh let's talk about your award so last year you were awarded a couple of different things the first one was um in april of 2018 you were awarded uh one of the national trusts Trust for Historic Preservation, 40 Under 40, People Saving Places for your work in preservation, along with a previous guest and director of the PRC here in New Orleans, Danielle Del Sol. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like for you to win or to be part of that group of, of 40 people? It was incredibly reassuring that these efforts that I'm making are something that people see valuable. Because I talk to a lot of other preservationists and we all have the same feeling that sometimes it feels like we're yelling into nothingness. Yeah. <laughs> ho- hoping to get some feedback. Um, so it was, it was really positive, especially because I had no clue that this process was even going on. It wasn't an open for applications type thing. It was all done internal through the National Trust for Historic Preservation staff. So having that support from the National Nonprofit for Historic Preservation, it made my heart swell, you know, like the Grinch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it, it was just wonderful. And what I've loved about the list, actually, is I've made some wonderful friends through it that I previously did not know existed, like Katie Kiyotami in California. Uh, she just launched this new social network for people who work in the built environment called Tico. It's really cool, weird, different. I'm excited about it. Or Carlos uh, Carmona Medina, who is from Mexico, but now lives in D.C. and does an illustration every day. And he just walks around town illustrating the city. And I've gotten to meet these people and hang out with them in person. And it's wonderful having this diverse of a perspective of what preservation is represented in this list. I love that they had people that do traditional preservation or are encouraging people to go to parks or artists. It was just a great project. And I've heard through the grapevine, they're going to do it again. Oh, well, I'd be interested to see who it's going to be, who it'll be this year. I was just fascinated reading everybody's um, little bios that they had. And it makes me want to go and research all of them and see what everybody's been doing. I I didn't, I guess I didn't realize this was a thing until... I was doing research for, for this interview and then it came up and I was like, hey, I see a few familiar faces on this list. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool. And then also, you also got another award from the National Trust in November of last year. You got the American Express Aspire Award. And can you tell us what that w- award is for? The award is given annually to one person during the annual historic preservation awards which are given out during the national trust for historic preservation conference 
And the Aspire Award specifically is meant to acknowledge somebody who has worked in the historic preservation field professionally or as a volunteer for 10 years or less and has shown leadership to an exemplary standard and is um, making strides that help push the field forward. So the year before me, it was a woman from West Virginia who helped get the state historic tax credit created. Oh, so okay. They really highlight a diverse spectrum of people each year. And I am honestly still in shock that I received it. I was just pleased as punch to be contacted by the lovely Chris Berger, who I've only met two times in person, and he's mostly just an Instagram friend. He reached out one day and was like, I want to nominate you for this. And I said, sure, I'll help out. I'll put the application together with you. And I heard a few months later that I got it. And I, it's just been really humbling. And once again, it's reassuring that my passion for educating people and making the field more accessible and engaging to younger audiences, whether it's K through 12 or millennials, that that work is being seen and recognized in a way that I just couldn't believe. And now I have a really nice shiny crystal trophy on my uh, shelf in case anybody breaks into my house. I have a great blunt object. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you if they gave you like a cool plaque or something to have in your house. That's It is a very heavy crystal trophy and TSA actually had to do a bag check because they thought it was very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, I don't know what this is. We'll have to look at it. That's really funny. <laughs> So I wanted to uh, sort of transition to my last set of questions that I kind of ask everybody. And my, my favorite thing to ask guests is what their favorite thing is about working in the preservation field. That is a incredibly tough question. And I would say it's two different things for me. The first is nothing makes me happier than when I'm giving tours or engaging with small children and you start to see a twinkle in their eyes when they start to connect to the history or buildings or their surroundings. And that's incredibly special to me to know that I can make an impact on somebody at a young age that I know will be something that they think about again in the future. But at a broader sense, I love that in historic preservation, we are people who can find stories that have been lost and find ways to bring it into the light again. And I really appreciate that a number of organizations are supporting that financially for studies of specific histories or surveys to find something or, you know, breathe new life into the past. It's a really incredible field to be a part of. And it's wonderful that all of us have a different reason as to why we're brought into it and what keeps us interested in it. And that keeps me interested and engaged and wanting to connect with people like you or your listeners or other people. We all have something a little special to share. And it's great that we can have this camaraderie and keep sharing and growing together. 
So on the other side of it, what is your least favorite thing? And do you have any pet peeves? I think that a lot of the historic preservation constructs that we are using today that were necessary to help establish the field need serious reevaluation. I'm mm-hmm. finishing up this National Register for Historic Places nomination, and I don't understand why I have to submit a CD with it. Most computers don't even have disk drives anymore. Right. You know, <laughs> you know? and I'm going to submit this paper application that will inevitably be digitized. Why can't I just skip a step, save a tree? Right. And, you know, I so, and then it's even... The 50-year rule, I find that incredibly limiting. So I think a lot of our constructs need a real evaluation because, like I said, preservation isn't one-size-fits-all. Maybe it's a conservation district instead of a historic district. National Register nominations, I understand that consultants like myself, we should be compensated for the work. But it's very cost prohibitive unless you're pursuing historic tax credits or some other financial incentive. So we're only preserving very specific types of history because there are some grants that exist to tell the full narrative. But, you know, like the majority of the work is very development driven or construct driven. I even find there's major ethical issues that preservationists, we're doing section 106, but our clients are the oil companies for the pipelines. How do you remedy actually being a true advocate for the archaeological sites, the above ground history, when your client wants to build on top of them? I think that we have a lot of work to do to make it so that preservation and cultural resources is valued at a level so that it's more ingrained in our built environment philosophy, architects, planners, just people in general, instead of making it more driven by the economics of it all. Right. Yeah. It does seem like in some cases to get anything done, it's about the money that's involved and how what you can make from it or how is it going to to profit for you and yeah yeah, I think you're right I think there needs to be more of an effort to move away from from doing things just for that sole purpose and and more into the to making it about the value of the spaces and getting people to understand that that things are worth they're worth something, even if they're not making you money <laughs> or making someone yeah. money, I guess. And I'm about to, to be it. a, I'm about to be a real monster right now. And I will say, I even think a lot of my peers get way too hung up on building materials. Not all buildings need to be preserved to the secretary of the interior standards. Would we rather let this building sit and continue to rot in an effort to keep its wood windows, or would you rather it see it activated in a part of a family's life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good, I really like what you just said. And I, I, I'm one of those people that I like, you know, the windows is definitely a pet peeve for me, but I also Wait. like to say, <laughs> spaces have to be functional and you know we we do live in a new century and 
it, we just live differently. And as much as I hate to see interiors blown out for, for open concept <laughs> and you know, w- w- wooden windows lost, it, you do have to think about those things. Like my husband's aunt and uncle own a house in upstate New York and it is stunning. It was built in 1883 and it was originally built as a summer home. Well, it's, obviously now used as a full-time residence and they couldn't keep it the way it was originally because they live there in the winter time when it's, you know, 10 degrees below freezing and they they have like five feet of snow <laughs> outside. Yeah. So they, they had to make some concessions to, to make sure that they could live in the house. Like the two upper floors didn't have any insulation in them at all. And you know, it, it, it's, you just, that's not livable for a, a family in, in those types of harsh winters. And so I think you have a point. Sometimes yeah. you have to figure out where the line is between keeping it and making it functional versus getting everything that you want and keeping everything exactly the same, I guess. Pick and choose your battles and avoid being a hysterical preservationist. <laughs> I like I like that term. Instead of historic preservationist, a hysterical preservationist. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty good. So, do would you say that you have any like ultimate goals as a preservationist? It is something that people ask me on a regular basis, and I very much struggle with an answer every time. I would say that professionally, I'm really enjoying being a consultant right now because it gives me an opportunity to work with a wide array of people. But Mm -hmm. fundamentally, my goal would have it be so that as many preservation organizations as possible have strong and engaging opportunities for the K through 12 audience. We are not doing enough to connect with the next generation of preservationists. Because if we ingrain preservation and a love of cultural resources at a young age, it will make proactive preservation. It will make our lives so much easier and it will give us a whole new generation of advocates, but also just, you know, the people who want to buy an old home and invest in it or understand how preservation is more than a singular structural or It's about walkable communities, diverse economic communities, you know, mixed use areas that there's so many strengths and reasons to be a part of this. So I would love to see a higher priority in connecting to youth today. And I would say nationally, we're really struggling with it. I see some exemplary efforts being done in specific areas, but it's disappointing to me when I'm the only person at all these conferences or events talking about kids. Mm -hmm. We have a a children's museum here that has, it's not, it's more, I guess it's more about the, like the historic architecture of the city, but they have like a little area where the kids can go in and play in like a playhouse that's meant to look like a shotgun type house that we have here. And there's where they can mix and match architectural styles of the types of things that you find, you know, sort of specifically for here. But that's really like off the top of my head. That's the only thing that I can think of that I know that's available here. 
And think about it, with the huge gaps in the history curriculum, it should be our job to help them understand the hidden histories of their community by telling it through the built environment. The fact that youth don't learn that the U.S. government was found guilty in the death of MLK Jr. or that Native Americans were enslaved, not all, but, you know, some were, or just that Indigenous people were sent off to schools and stripped away of their culture. These are really important themes that are impacting our communities and our government today. And of course, history is going to keep repeating itself if we have the gaps in the school. So us as preservationists, we should be helping try to bridge that gap as best we can. Plus, yeah. I will say that kids are really good at hands-on workshops. Yeah. Uh, they relayed a sidewalk for me in something like four hours. It was amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they, the kids really like to do that hands-on stuff. They like to be involved. And which is why I like the the coloring book that you are working on. And I, I love to see that kind of stuff. That's I just that's really great. So my last question is, what advice do you have for someone looking to get into the preservation field? I would encourage them to have conversations with people who are actively working in the field so that you can better understand how they got to where they are today and talk to recent graduates, talk to people who've been in the field for 40 plus years so that you can understand the full continuity of how working in the preservation field has evolved. And I would also encourage them that if they choose to pursue a degree in historic preservation to consider amplifying it by taking business courses and communication courses mm -hmm. because I would love to see more people go into consulting. I would love to see preservation be better at communicating, whether it's through social media channels or through newsletters. Just I would encourage you to understand that you can be a professional preservationist in a myriad of ways. So do some homework, have conversations with people so that you find out where you best want to use your skills to propel the field and yourself forward. That sounds like some good advice. Everybody has had different advice to give when I ask them that question. And I, I, I think definitely the business and the communication courses are really important. That's something, another one of those things that I wish that I had thought to do just to get that sort of base knowledge in there. Because if I wanted to start my own consulting company, I'm not even sure I would know where to start <laughs> at this point. So I think that's all really good advice to offer people. Could you just one last time go over how people can get in touch with you if they want to contact you about anything? If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can go to sarahmarsum.com and sign up for my newsletter. It is a quarterly newsletter, and that's a great way to know what I'm up to, where I'm traveling to, and other insights and interesting news. I'm also active on Instagram through the account Sarah Marsum again and Tiny Activist Project, and I am slowly becoming a Twitter user and again, it's just Sarah Marsum. I'm 
very creative like that. Uh, it's just <laughs> my name. I'm the only Sarah Marsden you're ever going to meet, so I might as well use it. Building that personal brand. That's, that's what I like to see. You know, it's funny because I was talking to my husband the other day about this and he was like, oh, well, what kind of work does she do? And I, I kind of went, well, she does a little bit of everything. But I, I was almost like the word that came to mind was influencer. You know, like you hear about those Instagram, like fashion influencers <laughs> and stuff like that. And I was like, does she kind of, to me, I'm feeling this like Sarah preservation influencer. That's kind of <laughs> the vibe that I was getting from, because you just do so many different projects and, and have like sort of out of, you know, more out of the box ideas about things. And that's kind of what it felt like. You've got, you've got your personal brand and your, and everything is doing these promotions and like, I don't know, that's just kind of what came to mind. <laughs> I guess that's flattering. And I guess it also reflects the fact that yes, I am, you know, I I'll be 30 this year. So I am in the influencer age. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, my work right now is very diversified because it's necessary, you know, for, to have multiple income revenue streams. Mm. But I would say dream world, I would be entirely focused on strategic planning for organizations and focusing solely on the heritage interpretation, outreach, communications, marketing, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're, you really like to do. That would, that's like your main passion. Yeah. Yeah. I love creating tours for people or one-off workshops, or I'm really excited partnering with the Michigan Historic Preservation Network to do a young preservationist focused strategic plan for them so they better understand how to integrate younger people into their organization through volunteers and donors and activities. I really like helping people best understand how to connect and then finding the histories and the stories that will expand their audience in a way they may not have thought about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a really good ending to the podcast. <laughs> I really like what you just said. I think that's a good conclusion. So I'm going to go ahead and say thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.